Give ear to God's word, Psalm 75. It says, To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a psalm of Asaph, a song. And he says, We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks, for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. Selah. I say to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask God to teach us his word uh, that we might grow in our faith. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Psalms that teach us uh, how to worship, that put the words in our mouth even, uh, how to worship and pray and sing your praise in all different kinds of circumstances in our lives. We pray that you would teach us your word even today, that you be with me as I, as I speak and be with us all as we hear your word. We pray that you would work in us by your spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. Lord, let us be doers of your word and not hearers only deceiving ourselves. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, if you've been here for a number of years, you might know that we've been, not every single month, but we've been going through the Psalms most of the time on the first Sunday of the month, and we are now at the halfway point. We've gone through a few other ones that are ahead of us than this, but we've gone through, by and large, in order, all the way up to the halfway point here, which is Psalm 75. Now, if you think about it, uh, the Psalms, including this one, were written, give or take, you know, close to 3,000 years ago. That's, that's a pretty amazing thing to think about, that here we are, you know, basically 3,000 years later, and we are still reading and praying and singing this, these psalms. And sometimes I think the distance in time can make us kind of think, and, and the circumstances being so different can lead us to think, well, you know, what's the relevance to, to me right now in the 21st century, in Ramona, wherever you happen to live? Um, and yet... When you read them, it reads as timely as ever. If you, if you take the time to meditate on God's word, all of God's word, but even the Psalms, I think we'll see that these things are as timely as ever, as they ever have been. Now, in verse 3, it's kind of the verse that jumped off the page of me when I was preparing uh, for the sermon. It says, when the earth totters. You know, picture that. I mean, the earth is spinning, but it's, you never see a top as it's about to fall over. And it's, you know, at first it's spinning very tightly, and then it kind of starts wobbling. And what's the next thing that's going to happen? It's going to crash. Uh, you know, think about the earth tottering. When, when the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it's not just the earth but the people on it, God says, it is I who keep steady its pillars. Even back in the psalmist day, there were times of, of, of upheaval uh, in such a way that it seemed as if the whole the whole world itself and everybody in it were tottering on the brink of complete collapse and destruction. 
You ever felt like that? You ever felt like that with our country these days? You ever watch the news too much? I recommend you do a little bit less of that, a little more of this, if you want to keep your sanity. Uh, it's easy to watch the news for too long and, and see some of the bad news of what's going on and think to yourself, it feels like the world is tottering. But what does God say? God's there holding the pillars. God is the one steadying the pillars to keep things from falling utterly apart. And he does that for the sake of his own glory and for the sake of his people. Now, even in a time when the earth seems like it's tottering and all its inhabitants, the psalmist tells us that the name of God, verse 1, is near. His name is near to his redeemed people. He is the one who keeps those pillars of his creation steady. And he will bring into judgment at his appointed time, not ours, uh, all the evil in this world. Now, that should be a great comfort to every believer in any age. That should be a great source of comfort, this psalm, as it says. And it should also be a terror and a warning to the wicked and the unrepentant, to those who are the enemies of God, of whom there are, sad to say, even as Paul said, there are many enemies of the cross of Christ, and there always have been, and there always will be until Christ returns. Well, I want to look at a few things from the psalm, and the first thing is giving thanks to God. That may seem like a strange thing to say when you're talking about the earth tottering and all its inhabitants, but the first thing the psalmist does in verse 1 is talk about giving thanks to God. Look at verse 1. It says, We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks. And what's the reason? For your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. You might know, if you know your Bible at all, that the Bible says in many places that we are to give thanks always. Ephesians 5.20 tells us that. Always. doesn't matter the circumstance. doesn't matter the time. Give thanks always. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says we are to give thanks in all things. I think the ESV says in all circumstances, but literally it's just all things. Doesn't necessarily doesn't necessarily mean for all things. There are bad things, but even in and through all those things, we should be people who give thanks to God. Now, giving thanks to God, you know, it's it's easy to do when things are going well. You know, at least it seems like it's easy to do, and that's that's something we should certainly do. But you know, this psalm and the ones right around it. 73, 74, 76, all the way through 78. All of these psalms were written in a tough time. They were all written in a time of trial and difficult circumstance. And yet, what do we have here in the middle of this section? Give thanks to God. We will give thanks to God for his name was near. Now, we've already seen in verse 3 that, you know, things were in such a way, things were in such turmoil in the psalmist state that the earth seemed to be tottering or shaking. Now, you know, it seemed like things were very much out of control. In the previous psalm, if you were here, we looked at Psalm 74. Psalm 74 was written during a very tough time in the people of Israel's lives and history because the, the temple had been torn down. And it says even the synagogues were burned. The enemy had come in. They had torn down their place of worship, the main place where the sacrifices were made, and also torn down or burned their, their meeting places all over the land, the synagogues. Imagine how hard that was. We don't know what's going on here in Psalm 75. They're, the commentators, they speculate all kinds of different circumstances, and we don't really have a way of knowing for sure. Sometimes it's probably better that we don't know, because if it's too specific, sometimes we might be tempted to say, well, my situation is nothing like that. Well, here we can't really do that. We just know the psalmist and those around him, the God's people, felt like things were about to fly you know, out of control and things were going to fall apart. 
And so, you know, what we do see in this psalm, though, is repeated references, really warnings to the boastful and to the wicked. Look at verses 4 and 8 and 10. He talks about the wicked and the boastful repeatedly. And what does he talk about in this psalm is God's coming judgment upon them. And so at the very least, I think what this suggests is this was a time of some kind of incursion or invasion. That there were foreigners, there were the wicked, those who hated God's people that were triumphing over them. Uh, and there was warnings to them in this psalm. But even in, even in a time like that, I mean, think about that. Think about what this may have looked like. Think about the people in Afghanistan right now, the believers that are in Afghanistan right now. They, they know exactly what this kind of situation is, and yet what does the psalmist open with? We give thanks to you, O God, and we give thanks to you for your name is near. The psalmist calls upon us, even in tough times, to give thanks to God. He insists on God's people giving thanks to our God. And that's something everybody who confesses the name of Christ needs to take to heart and to practice. And so I asked this morning, uh, are you thankful? Do you spend time in prayer? And when you do pray, does thanksgiving to God form a large part of your prayer life? Is our prayer life kind of the, the gimmies, you know, the, the, the grocery list to God? Or do we thank God for his goodness before we go into asking a request? Do you, have, do you not have much to thank God for? If you're a believer in Christ, you have more things to thank God for than you can possibly imagine. More things, they say, than you can shake a stick at. Is your salvation from sin not worthy of your utmost thanksgiving and praise to God? Is God's care for your life throughout your lives not worthy of thanksgiving to God? Is providential care getting you through all the different circumstances and trials and afflictions that he has done? Now notice, notice the psalmist's reason or rationale for giving thanks to God. We don't know again what was going on, but despite all that was going on all around him, the difficulties, the afflictions uh, that he was facing at the time, uh, he gives thanks because God was what? Near. He, he says in verse 1, We give thanks for your name is near. God's name being near, what does that mean? It means that God himself is near. God's name represents God. Just like your name in some way represents you. You know, when, when you read the Ten Commandments as we did earlier in the service, what is the, the third commandment? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. God's name matters. The glory of his name, the holiness of his name, the praise of his name matters greatly to God and it should, it should matter to us as well because his name is the thing by which he makes himself known. It's, 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 it's his name represents God. And how was the psalmist so sure that God was near? That's easy to say when things aren't going rough. How did he know God, God's name was near? Because of, what does he say, his wondrous deeds. Because of God's wondrous deeds, he knew he was near. The psalmist had the eyes of faith to see that God was at work. And because the psalmist and every believer in Christ can know that God, as Psalm 46, 1 says, is a very, he's not just present, he's a, what, very present help in trouble. And when you're having trouble, does it feel like God's near? No, it feels like God is kind of down the block. He's around the corner somewhere. He's sort of in the neighborhood. You know, like when you have kids and you're at the store. And when I was a kid, you know, whenever my mom took us to the store, to, not the grocery store, but, you know, the, the department store, we always wanted to go to the toy section. Well, where she had to go was never the toy section. 
I don't know why that was, Mom. But, um, you know, she wasn't there to watch us, so she was around the corner. She was in some other section, and we had to hope she was sort of watching, and she had to hope that we weren't getting into trouble. Uh, but, when you know, God is always a very present help in time of trouble to his, to his people. Charles Spurgeon writes the following. He says, Glory be unto the Lord, whose perpetual deeds of grace and majesty are the sure tokens of his being with us always, even unto the end of the world. If you have the eyes of faith to see God at work in the circumstances in your life, it is a reminder to us, a good reminder that God is near. You know, we just sang a hymn, This is my Father's world, I won't sing it again. Uh, But he says, This is my Father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. Uh, This is my Father's world, I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas, his hand, the wonders wrought. He's looking at creation, looking at nature, looking at the things around him, and he's, he's the, the writer of the psalm is saying, I'm seeing God's hand in those things all around me every day. It says, This is my Father's world, verse 3, O let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. All the things around you, even the things in God's creation, are reminders of God's power and his nearness. When we're tempted to doubt the nearness of God, in all of our lives as his people, let us learn to recount for ourselves and remember the wonderful works of God in history, in creation and providence, the wonderful works of God in our salvation, your salvation and mine, in your own lives, God's providential care for you. And let us encourage each other to to do the same, to remember these things, to call them to mind when things are going rough, and let us always thank the Lord, always and in all things, Well, the second thing, not just giving thanks to God, but the providence of God is is really written throughout this psalm. You know, sometimes it's difficult to know as you maybe as I was reading it, you were thinking the same thing. Who's doing the talking here? One verse, the psalmist is saying we we're going to give thanks to God. And all of a sudden there's I. But I doesn't sound like something the psalmist would say. It sounds like something that God would say. And I believe God is the one speaking throughout most of this this psalm uh, here in the words. And so. You know, he says, we give thanks to you, O God. But look at verse 2 through 5. Verses 2 through 5 again. I believe it's God here who is doing the speaking. Uh, At this point, he says, at the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keeps steady its pillars. Selah. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not Lift up your horn on high or speak with a haughty neck. So we go from God's people giving thanks to God giving a warning to the wicked and the unrepentant. You know, to the enemies of God and, and, and to the enemies of his people, no doubt that day of God's just judgment, both those judgments that happen in this world as well as the one that happens in the next, you know, they always seem far off. In fact, they probably most of all seem non-existent. You know, most unbelievers... They deny God's judgment entirely. They mock it. They scorn it at times. But God here in the psalm as well as elsewhere reminds them that he will judge. And when will God judge? Both both his temporal judgments as well as the one on the last day. He says, at the set time, verse 2, at the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. He will judge. In other words, he will judge. He'll judge when he wants to, when he has decided to. And he will judge with equity or justly. 
you know, we see uh, in, in our lives, in the news and whatnot, many unjust judgments. You know, one of, the, one of the biggest frustrations for any godly people is seeing unjust judgments. God says it's, there's, there's a judgment coming, not just ones in this life, but the one to come. Uh, it, it'll come when he wants it to, and it will be with equity. It will be entirely just and right and true. And that is a cause of rejoicing for God's people who see so much injustice in this world in many ways. And he reminds his people, as well as the wicked, of his all-wise and powerful providence here, doesn't he? He says in verse 3 again, When the earth totters and all of its inhabitants are tottering with them, it is I who keep steady its pillars. That word tottering is kind of a, a strange word. It has the idea uh, also of something being dissolved or melted away. So it has the idea of something being wiped out. Like this is, you know, on its last legs, that kind of a, of a thing, uh, of it being wiped out. And yet, what does it say? Uh, God is the one who keeps steady its pillars. So, you know, sometimes in our lives and in the world, it seems as if everything and everyone in it is on the verge of destruction at the hands of wicked men. You know, and if, and if God were not there, maybe it would be. You know, if God were not there, if, or if we were deists and God created everything and then left, kind of thing, may, maybe things like that would happen, uh, if not for the providential care of our God. God's providence, if you know your shorter catechism, question 11, look that one up after the service, question 11, defines providence as God's, quote, most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Sounds like everything, doesn't it? What does God do? Two things. He preserves all things, all things. All his creatures, all his creation. And he also governs all his creatures and all their actions. He is, we are not deists and the Bible does not teach that. God's providence is all-encompassing. God is the one who is preserving all things even now. If he wasn't, we would cease to exist. He sustains, the Bible says, sustains all things by his powerful word. God not only creates things, we don't just owe our, our existence to him in, in creation, but also in providence as well. And so God is, is preserving and governing all things in such a way that he sees to it that they all fit. All things continue to their appointed ends in God's time. Nothing can frustrate God's hand or hold back his will. In fact, Paul in Ephesians 1.11, one of my favorite verses, he says that God, quote, works all things according to the counsel of his will. Not most things, all things. There's not a single thing in this world, in existence, in God's universe, visible or invisible, that God is not making all things work out according to the counsel of his perfect will. And so we may be weak and fearful about many things, but let those of us who confess the name of Jesus Christ uh, and know him by faith never think or speak or live as those who doubt or deny God's existence or his providence. We should not live or speak or think like unbelievers, like atheists, like people who don't believe in God and don't believe in his providence. Let us show it in all of our thoughts and words and actions that we are not practical atheists. What's a practical atheist? It, it means, you know, an atheist is someone who says there's no God. A practical atheist, of whom there are many more than the actual atheists. Really, there are no true atheists, right? 
but a practical atheist is someone who doesn't deny God in what they say. They don't say there's no God, but they act and live as if he's not there. We as Christians of all people should not live or speak or even think in that kind of a way. We should, we should know and act like we know that there is a God in heaven who is with us always, even to the end of the age, and that God who is with us always works all things according to the counsel of his will for, for his glory and for our good. So let's be careful not to disown the providence of God or the God of providence, and let us rather be comforted by the sure knowledge of it. We may not know what's going to happen outside of what Scripture has revealed. The earth and everyone around us may seem to be on the brink of destruction, but we know the one who keeps steady its pillars, that God will preserve all things and preserve his people. Well, the, the, the third thing in our psalm here is not just uh, thanksgiving to God, not, not even just the providence of God, but even in God's teaching about his providence in this psalm, he gives a warning to the boastful and the wicked, doesn't he? And the boastful and the wicked are really the ones, uh, you have to assume, kind of causing the world to seem to totter in the first place. So there's a reason that God does this here. Things seem out of control. It seems like the enemies of God and his people are in control, and yet God rebukes them and warns them. And this should be a great comfort to every believer, and it should also be a sobering warning to the wicked and the unrepentant. Look at verses 4 through Wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with a haughty neck. Why not? For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. That's a, a sobering warning. Boasting and wickedness, you know, you might have noticed this as you read through the Psalms, especially in the Psalms, but throughout Scripture, boasting and wickedness are very often closely associated, excuse me, very closely associated in the Bible and especially in the book of Psalms. In fact, if, you, if you're ever in the habit of looking at more than one translation, like when I, when I do my translating work for sermons and whatnot, I tend to have the ESV, the NASB, the King James kind of at, at hand to see how the different translations render certain verses that may be different uh, and how they render it. And very often you will find, uh, as you read through the Psalms especially, uh, it'll say arrogant, and other translations will say wicked. And there's a reason for that. It's, it's that kind of a, they're so closely related that it's sometimes hard to distinguish them because it's the same group. Those two things go together like a hand in uh, a glove. And so those who, who do not fear God are often the ones who are foolish enough to boast as if they can do whatever they want, they can sin with impunity, and they really act and live and speak as if they're little gods. They're the ones, you know, like Nebuchadnezzar before God humbled him. Look at this great kingdom I've created, and God made him eat grass like an ox. You know, it's like, oh, you're glorious, aren't you? You know, you've built this great kingdom with no help, right? Well, watch this, you know, and look what he did, and then he humbled him. You know, they are at times even tempted to boast and hold their heads high because they find themselves in these positions of great power, wealth, and influence. You know, they even find themselves in great power and authority over God's people with the ability to do them harm. And so what is the, what is the, the sinfully natural inclination to think, 
Who's God? Remember what Pharaoh said? I've been reading uh, this children's story Bible to Luke at night, and we're in the Exodus. And what does Pharaoh say when Moses says, hey, the Lord God of the Hebrews says, and I asked him, what does God say? He said, let my people go. You know, and he said, what, is, what was Pharaoh's response? Who's God? Who's the Lord that I should listen to him? Well, God, what did he do? God showed him who the Lord was through plagues and through that final exodus. Uh, they're, they're, they're tempted to boast and hold their heads high uh, because they find themselves in great power over even God's people in doing them harm. But, but who put them there? There's the point. It's the point of the psalmist and elsewhere in scripture. Who, who put them there and gave them that position of power to begin with? Who raised them up to be able to do those things? It's God alone who ultimately raises up one and puts down the other. Does, does Paul not say the same very thing in Romans chapter 9 about Pharaoh? Romans nine seventeen through 18, this is what Paul writes. He's really quoting the Old Testament. He says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh. Notice he doesn't say God says to Pharaoh. Who said it to Pharaoh? God did. Paul says scripture. What does it say about the word of God, about the Bible? It's the word of God. God says and scripture says are the same thing. The word of scripture is the word of God. He says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have, there's the same phrase, raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Who did he harden? Why did Paul bring up Pharaoh? When you read the story of the Exodus, ten times I believe it is each plague, it talks about Pharaoh's heart being hardened. Sometimes it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Other times it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He shows mercy to some, he hardens others. He lifts some up, he brings some others down. Now, why did Pharaoh think that he was in the position he was in? Paul says that God tells him, for this very purpose I've raised you up, God says that I might show my power in you that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh thought it was just the opposite. Pharaoh thought it was that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth, which it, it was, but not the way he was hoping, was it? In other words, God is telling him, I've raised him up in order to, to magnify his own power and proclaim his name in the earth by judging him. He put him in the position he was in, the, the mightiest man in the world, the head of the mightiest army and nation in the world at that time. And yet God glorified himself in judging him and, and redeeming his people from harm from their hands. God raised up Pharaoh to be the most powerful human ruler on earth. Pharaoh, didn't, Pharaoh probably did some things to get that position, but Pharaoh didn't raise himself up and he couldn't have been raised up without God doing it. That position of prestige and power and might, God put him there, but he continued to rebel against God. And so God puts him in his place and reminds him that he raised him up in order to magnify his own name and his own power in Pharaoh's destruction. God did all that to glorify his name in the earth and to redeem his people from slavery in Egypt. Remember what the psalmist says, it's God who lifts up, exalts, and it's God who puts down and judges and that lifting up or exalting, now, God uses human means, right? Very often, God uses secondary causes and things like that. But the exalting and pulling down does not come from those sources. It comes from God ultimately himself, 
not from human devising or plotting. It does not come, he says in verse 6, it does not come from the east or from the west. And I think what that has the idea of is a, a, you know, kind of a treaty with another country. And you, get, you get help from other nations from, from the east, from the west. God's like, you can make all the treaties you want. I'm the one who lifts up and puts down. And nothing you do can change that. That's what he tells uh, Pharaoh and what he tells the evil ones here in the psalm. Those who are in power right now, all over the world, whether right or wrong, whether they are using their position for good or for evil, every single one of them has been raised up by God for his purposes to those positions. And what, what should they do as a result? God may still put them down. They are answerable to God for how they govern, for how they rule, for how they legislate, for how they... Uh, every, every single part of the government, high or low, everyone there will, will answer to God for what they do with the position that God put them in. He executes, verse 7, God executes judgment. Now look again what he says in verse 8 about his wrath upon the wicked. He says, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. You know, the, the, the imagery in scripture of a cup and of wine is, uh, is, is manifold throughout scripture. Sometimes uh, wine is a, is a symbol of joy, of rejoicing, of, of a wedding. Other times the cup is a picture of God's wrath. You know, we have... Uh, what is it, the Battle Hymn of the Republic? There's, there's imagery in that song uh, about this kind of a thing, about the wrath of God and the, the vintage, the grapes of wrath, where the, God, the vintage of God's wrath is stored. Well, um, you know, think about what Jesus said when he prayed in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. He prayed three times that this what? This cup might pass. What cup was Christ asking to have passed from him if it was God's will? The cup of his suffering. Very often the scripture uses the cup in that kind of regard. And that suffering was the wrath of God for our sins, for your sins and mine. The Bible uses the, the, the idea of wine or a cup as an image of his wrath in Revelation, chapter 14, verses 9 through 11. There it says, Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or in his hand, here it is, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. You know, that's... You don't have to be an expert in eschatology and in the book of Revelation to get what, what he's saying there. God's wrath is a fearful thing. The knowledge of it, the sure knowledge of it, should bring the wicked to their knees in repentance. You know, two psalms ago, Psalm 73, remember that psalm where, where the, the psalmist was, was uh, what does it say, he was vexed, he was troubled by the prosperity of the wicked and didn't know how to make sense of it or heads or tails of it. And then he said he went into the, the sanctuary and he discerned their end and then it all changed. But in Psalm 73, 18 to 19, it talks about God's just judgment in his own time on the wicked and the unrepentant. And it describes it as God, quote, putting them in slippery places and making them suddenly fall to ruin so that they are destroyed in a moment 
swept away utterly by terrorists. The picture is of the wicked walking around in pride and arrogance as if they're in a steady you know, place. There's nothing could possibly touch them, and yet without them knowing it, they're on a slippery spot where, where a fall is quick to happen. Second Peter 2.9 says this, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. This isn't just an Old Testament thing, is it? You could say that verse is kind of a summary, sort of, of this psalm. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. His judgments don't always come on our schedule when we would prefer, but they will come and they will be with equity or with justice. Now, that's that's kind of what the psalmist is saying in verse 10, isn't it? When he says that the horn of the the horns of the wicked will be what? Cut off, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. You know, James 4, 6 says something similar, that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's what the scripture says, the Old and the New Testament alike. Now, the truth and certainty of God's just judgment, both in his temporal judgments in this life, as well as his final judgment unto eternity on that last day, that should be a sobering, terrifying reality for the wicked and the unrepentant. You know, people don't prefer this kind of thing, this kind of message, but it's in the Bible all through it. And there's a reason for that. You know, if you know, it's it's God's way of warning the wicked to turn from their sins and live. But at the same time, you know, maybe maybe if you're you know, if you're a believer this morning, maybe you read these kind of passages and you they make you kind of uncomfortable. Even as a believer, you read these things and you kind of, oh, I don't know. It should be a comfort to you if we understand it right. God's just judgment should be a great comfort to us. And I think sometimes the reason it isn't, when it, when it isn't, is that we, don't, we haven't really suffered that much. We certainly haven't been persecuted as some throughout this world or even persecuted today for their faith in naming the name of Christ. But for those who have suffered persecution and affliction for the name of Christ, these kinds of passages are comforting. God will make this right. All these things that the wicked do to God's people in this life throughout history, God will make it all right one day. He will make, through his judgment, all these things be judged justly. Now in closing, look how the psalm comes full circle. It both opens and closes with thanksgiving and praise. The psalmist, really, if you look at this right, he's really declaring God's praises for his just judgment. He's not embarrassed by God's judgment. He's praising God for it. Verse 9, he says, but I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. The knowledge of God's nearness to his people in time of trouble, the knowledge of his most wise and powerful providence, and even his, the knowledge of, of the certainty of God's just judgment against the wicked should be causes for thanksgiving and praise from God's people. May we never t- tire of declaring these great truths of God's word to each other and to ourselves. May we learn to sing praises as the psalmist does to God in light of them. Amen.